They say the second time's the charm, not the third time. In this case, starting the podcast. If you're having trouble starting it, you could be in trouble for the whole damn thing. I don't know what's going on this week, Popey, but here we are. We still don't know what's going on in the Ontario Hockey League, but we'll get to that in just a bit. The good news is that we've already done the interview part. This is just the preamble. (laughs) Obviously, I'm wearing a backwards snapback, and I have a T-shirt on that says 2020 and toilet paper. I decided to take it casual, casual Friday today. You know, we're recording on a Thursday. I figured it's a casual day. We were uh, receiving feedback in the Farwell and Pope at gmail.com inbox this week. And I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to remind everyone, like all 13 or 14 people that regularly listen to this podcast, that they too can be like Lowell Williamson, who sent in an email through farwellandpope at gmail.com. That's one way to get in touch with us at underscore Chris Pope on Twitter or at Farwell underscore OHL on Twitter. Always happy to hear from you. And hey, we'll answer questions or take suggestions. And Lowell wants us to get who on the pod? I can't remember. I don't have the email open. Mike, you put me on the spot here. I have a video camera. I can't be typing away, you know? I'm sure I can. from Oshawa. Yeah. Back-to-back 50 tuck seasons. That is not bad. No, not bad at all. <laughs> apparently, apparently that uh, that gets you remembered because he goes back a little bit. Yes, it it it's a a guy from uh, the, the past, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, those are the guys that I like to talk to because they got lots of stories back when uh, the game was a little different. And uh, they're they're removed enough from the game that they'll talk about some of the things that maybe other people don't want to talk about. So well, they're they're fun to get. And that's what I like about our guest this week because he's relatively recently removed from the OHL, but he didn't seem to mind talking about his time in Europe. Uh, there is mm. a story to come about dancing on a bar and being caught on social media, and I'm trying to remember the coach's name precisely, but it's. Nickname in the middle. His middle name was Jesus. Which Chris is McSorley. Good. There you go. Chris Jesus McSorley. McSorley. So if, you, if you don't want to hear stories like that, you're in the wrong place. And we'll get to those with our guest coming up. How do you not want to hear those types of stories, right? <laughs> I've heard many of many a Chris McSorley stories, and we get a couple more this week. Um, yeah, I think those are the best guys. I love, I love hearing the stories of uh, players, you know, that – they try to go pro here or they may go pro for a couple, couple years. And then they go overseas, you know, live the life for a handful of years and then come back and get a real job. I feel like that's the dream, isn't it? Play hockey for a bit. Like obviously the dream is the NHL, but you know, not everybody's going to get that. So you go overseas, play for a couple of years, come back, get a real job. Yeah. And I think in some cases, because if you're in the right place overseas, you're making enough money that you, you play for as long as your body will allow you to play. You remember when we t- Remember when we talked to Linger? Yeah. He's just like, I'm still a free agent. I'm not retired. I'm just, I'm just waiting for a call from the next team. The guy's in his right? mid-40s. He's, he was still kicking the can, wanting to get back into it. But you mentioned guys that go um, overseas for you know years. I just We didn't talk about this, but uh, Martin St. Pierre announced he's officially retired. He, he went overseas and played for you know a bunch of years. Uh, just recently in Germany, I believe. 
Uh, looks like he on the Liga over there, 26 points in 31 games. Uh, but he's finally hanging him up. He was a member, obviously, of uh, OHL champion Guelph Storm. Um, I thought he was going to play in the – I think if he would have graduated from the OHL in today's game, I think he would have played in the NHL for a longer period than he did. Um, just because I, I think he was so skilled, so skilled. Um, and I think he could have had a, a real long career um, given the right opportunity. But stick tap to him because he had a great OHL career. He was a beast. And, and for those wondering if we're complete morons, that would not be the – 2019 champion Guelph Storm or the 2014 champion Guelph Storm that Marty St. Pierre played for. That would be the 04 champion Guelph Storm that Marty 110 points that year. Not bad. Yeah, and a real nice guy. Great flow. As it turns out, the former Guelph Storm, we should also acknowledge a now other former Guelph Storm in Doug Robertson, the trainer. So first Rusty Hammond walks away, a guy we're going to have to get on the podcast at some point because he's going to have some stories. Anytime you talk to Rusty, you need to have at least 20 minutes. So we'll get him on for like a three-hour podcast. Yeah. But uh, but Rusty retired a couple of years back, and Doug took over, and now it's been announced that he has left the storm to take a job with the local board of education in Guelph. And here we go. Another guy little, that we've known a long time yeah. out of the game. And I was a little thrown back by it, to be honest. And I think mostly because um, you get the idea – through rusty that you just like Doug, you're going to be there for the next 30 years. That's what you do. You're, you know, we see it with Dan Liebold and Kitchener. We had rusty down the, the road in Guelph. Doug, you're going, you're leaving too soon. What do you mean? Like, this is the, this is what you do. You just ride it out until you're ready to retire. And these guys that you get to meet uh, on the training staffs, like when we go, when we pull into cities in the middle of the night on a road trip and you got to get to the rink to drop off the gear and hang it up in the room and all that stuff. And and who's there to greet you to let you in the side door of the arena at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And Bucky Buchanan up in Sudbury as one example, right? right? All, it's always the training staff that's yeah. there to, uh, to meet us on the other end. Great bunch of guys. They really are. Well, and we, in this week, we actually hear about um, boys in Oshawa, the trainer there, one of the longest serving trainers in the OHL right now, I believe. And um, our guest talks very highly of, um, uh, boys and and what he meant to his career and um i i love those guys because they just do so much and it's kind of thankless we see it all the time about like how many times have we been on the road or whatever and you know we get in at 10 or 11 and you and i are trying to find the closest bar we can go have a quick couple beers and some nachos at you know meanwhile we ask the training staff if they want to come but Danny's got to go over to the rink and set up the room and then he's there till two thirty. or he can't get in because there's a concert and he's got to he won't be back to the hotel by four and then up at seven for morning skate at nine. Like, like th- these guys work hard, especially on the road. They really, really do. Um, I don't know about you as we s- switch gears here a little bit, but I've been be I've been bombarded over the last week or so with Kitchener Rangers fans that are just, I mean, they're giddy Popey. I'll tell yeah. you, it's, it's hard to settle down kids, settle down, but Hey, enjoy it when you can. The bombardment comes because Riley Damiani, the former Rangers co-captain, uh, had his first professional hat trick and is tied for second in American Hockey League scoring with 17 points through 13 games. Who's he tied with? Another former Kitchener Ranger in the form of Adam Maskren, also 17 points in 13 AHL games with the uh, Texas Stars. So, yeah, listen, 
enjoy following your former players into the American Hockey League and the National Hockey League or wherever it is that they go and celebrate those successes. I will say this on the Damiani front. I remember when he came into the Ontario Hockey League as a rookie and immediately what struck you, at least what struck me, was his 200-foot game. This guy was responsible at both ends of the ice and he was pretty darn good on face-offs from the beginning. So you knew he was going to be responsible for you. And, and he proved that. And then consistency, found a bit of a scoring touch as he developed in the Ontario Hockey League. But I got to say, and you made reference to it with Martin St. Pierre earlier. So maybe it is today's NHL. But even in today's NHL, I personally wasn't convinced that Riley Damiani was NHL material. And I know we're talking about the AHL right now. But even when he got signed as quickly as he did by the Dallas Stars, I thought, boy, that's bold, but maybe they know more than I do. And, and certainly right now, tied for second in American Hockey League scoring is not a bad place to be for a kid. Two former Rangers with the Dallas organization doing well. That's weird. I wonder if they, who their like Kitchener area <laughs> scout would be. Very weird. Could be that um, former, uh, former guest on the podcast. Yeah, Joe McDonnell. That's yeah, right. That he guy. seems to have an eye for talent. He was an architect of four Stanley Cups in Detroit. Well, an architect for two. He wrote two. Uh, coattails for two of them his words not mine that's right um but yeah I, I you know what i'll say this um we got to know riley extremely well in his time in kitchener and his his parents rico and jen and i will say if riley ever uh listens to this podcast which i'm sure he won't but if anybody does and knows riley i will say keep proving me wrong so are you are you suggesting perhaps that you were in the same camp i was just wasn't sure about what the next level of hockey was going to be for Damiani. Hey, we've talked about this and, and Riley <laughs> chirped me for years. I think at least a couple of years about it where I lost a bet to you saying you had a total of how many goals he would score in a season. And I said, I don't think he'll get that high. I honestly thought he would just be like uh, what every team wants, right? That shut down centerman. I thought this kid is going to shut down top lines for years for this organization. Um, and I was wrong. And I've told him he, chirped me when you mentioned it on the air that he and then he found out and he ripped me all the time because we would always see each other as I came up to the media room he'd be stretching on the concourse and stuff and he chirped me about it a lot I'm like hey keep proving, proving me wrong I'd love to be wrong buddy and he's gonna, uh, it's great to see him and and MASH both doing uh, really well he's gonna chirp you again now for calling his father Rico when the name's Reno but we'll oh, just Reno, that's it, Rico? <laughs> he did. that's okay I just want to make sure we're not you know no, I have a customer Rico <laughs> <laughs> and I was working. That's what it was. Anyway, sorry. For the record, that bet on Damiani was for 25 goals. I believe right. it was 33, 32 or 33. I think he ended up with that year. But yeah, and, and you did lose and you paid up. And, and I really appreciated that. I also, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, if you had something, but I was going to say, speaking of paying up, the Ontario government's paying up. Mike. Oh, yes. Okay, we'll get to Segways. that. But when, with all of the excitement in Rangers Nation because of Damiani yes. and Masker, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a, just going to take a look the AHL scoring leaders right now. So yes, tied second, Maskerin and Damiani, two former OHLers. But if you look, they're well represented, the OHL, across the top 20 in league scoring in the American Hockey League right now. Eight former NHLers in top 20 scoring in the American Hockey League. Michael Bunting with the Arizona Coyotes now, formerly of the Sioux Greyhounds, is in the top 10. Adam Ruzichka, of course, from the uh, Sarnia, Sarnia Sting. Sting. Yeah, and a prospect of the Calgary Flames also in top 10 scoring. And then you get into the next 10 on the way to 20, Tyler Godette, former Greyhound, Sam Carrick, formerly of the Brampton 
Battalion back in the day. Ryan McLeod, no surprise to see that name in the top mm. 20 of AHL scoring from Missy. He's an Edmonton prospect. And Arthur Callie of a name you'll remember well, a second rounder to LA, and of course played with the Hamilton Bulldogs. All eight of those former OHLers in top 20 scoring in the AHL as we speak tonight. Aliyev doesn't surprise me at all. Remember when he fell to LA? You can talk about his skating as much as you want and his attitude, but that dude just puts the puck in the net. Like, you know, eventually some things get, you always, I, I find sometimes when a, a player is so good, the media and people around the game try to find and nitpick things that are wrong with them. You know, we saw even with McDavid in the OHL, people were trying to find something wrong with him. It's like, just appreciate him for what he is. And, you know, sure, there's knocks against Kalia for sure. But at the end of the day, when you put up points, you tend to forget some of those knocks. And that's all that guy does is put up points. So paying up, as you mentioned a moment ago, the Ontario Hockey League is getting some money ponied up by the provincial government in Ontario. Thoughts? Yeah, over two mil towards their, I like how it's towards the scholarship aspect, right? So the teams aren't getting any relief yet on lost revenue this season or anything like that. But this 2 million helps uh, the OHL teams that are going to have to pay for the, the uh, scholarships for the past, past players into next year. I think I read that the OHL paid over 3 million in scholarships last year and the government now giving them over 2.3 million. So the league's still on the hook for some, but when you get, you know, when the province is coming to the table showing, that we, they want to work with the OHL. So to me, that's a great step to see because we hadn't heard anything. When we talked to David Branch on this podcast and I asked him straight up about, has there been any talk about financial relief for these teams? And his answer was no. So I'm glad that they did talk in the last couple of weeks about some financial relief. And hopefully uh, the next release the Ontario Hockey League is sending out is announcing a nice 20 game season. Well, it's funny you should mention that. And and real quick on the math, so at 2.35 million, it's about 138,000 for each of the 17 Ontario-based teams. Sorry, okay, Erie, Ray, man. Flint and Saginaw, you don't qualify for Ontario government relief, which makes sense, I suppose. But you talk about the next release from the Ontario Hockey League. Here is something that is kind of confusing me right up until this moment. We have been hearing a lot of chatter about a possible return to some kind of Ontario Hockey League season over the last many days. You just referenced that 20 game or 24 game, whatever it's going to be season that we are all now anticipating more than ever. It sounds quite frankly, like a certainty, but here's the thing that's confusing me a little bit. All of the information and all of the conversation is being driven by Lisa McLeod, our Minister of Sport in Ontario, and then by extension, the Ontario government. The Ontario Hockey League hasn't said a word. It's just allowing the government to kind of take the puck up ice, if you will. And I find that just a little bit strange. Do you? I do. I don't. Well, here's what I would Here's what I would assume. We we both have a lot of time for David Branch. Mm-hmm. I know I know not all fans do, but you and I have made this clear. And I would expect a guy that's been in that role for as long as he has and has been preparing for the possibility, which now looks like the inevitability of a return to play, he's going to have a handful of scenarios worked out that will be activated depending on what he hears from the government. And believe me, I still think this is the case. I'm just wondering why the league isn't 
talking about this then and allowing the government to have the entire story to themselves. Because it's not the league's call. That's it. Well, sure. It's, 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 no, it's, no I, I would argue it's not the government's call to say how the league is going to play out. Well, no, it, it's the government's call for sure right now. And I think we got that from Branch when we talked to him. It's the OHL coming to the government and to our Lisa McLeod and probably Ford and our top province's doctors saying, this is a, we have plan A, plan B, plan C. And the government says, nope. So then Branch goes back to the drawing board with Mr. Baker and comes back. We have plan D, we have plan E, we have plan F. And then they say, ooh, plan F, maybe, okay, but go back and change this, 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 and then bring it, or then bring it back. And I think it's going to be, they have to get approval on everything from the government at the end of the day. So it's the government really that's driving everything. It's the OHL that's going to say, hey, okay, we came up with a plan and it's approved by the government so we can move forward. That's why I don't think the, the OHL is saying anything. And I, we know Branch, he doesn't like um, a whole lot of leaking from OHL head office, right? He wants his message to come straight from him and it'll come out when it's confirmed a hundred percent that this is the action plan moving forward. I don't, and when that does come, I don't know if it's going to be the OHL sending out a release. It might even be the provincial government. Yeah. See, this is where I'll, I'll tell you what I think. What I think is David Branch is plenty smart enough to know that the more he allows the Ontario government to appear to have the reins of control in all of this, the better it is for the Ontario Hockey League because then the government looks like the big winner, right? So yeah. Doug Ford and, and, and his, you know, crony conservatives conservative cronies and i use that that term in the nicest way exactly pump those tires but what i don't get like you're absolutely right that whatever plan the league puts forward is going to have to be approved by the government and there's a there's a whole lot of government control no we're not going to allow fans in the building there 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 will be these uh cleaning and sanitation protocols etc etc but i don't think it should be Ontario Sport Minister Lisa McLeod telling me it's going to be a 24 game season in four bubbles. I don't. I don't think that's her job. I think that's the Ontario Hockey League's job to say, "Here's what we're doing," or "Here's the proposal we're working on right now." We're going to play a 24 game season, and the bubbles are going to be in Niagara, Kingston, Sault Ste. Marie, and London. I, I think that should be coming from the league. I don't want to hear that from Lisa McLeod. I want to hear that from David Branch. You're right, but there are some major egos at play. And it may not be her job, but it wasn't her job to hop on Twitter out of nowhere and say, if the OHL wants to play, they're going to have to do so without body contact. Well, <laughs> I'll let you read between the lines there as to what her job actually is. And, you know, anyway. I think the best part was her tweet a couple of weeks ago, watching her son play hockey and talking about how great it was to be back in the rink because they were in an orange zone. I'm like, oh, Minister McLeod, you're in Ontario. And there are a lot of people that want to be doing the same thing that you are watching kids play hockey. Anyway, I I think that we're out to lunch, just completely out to lunch. But anyway, we got to be getting pretty close here, Popey. I mean, even Uh, again, the sport minister, Lisa McLeod says yeah. she thinks we can have something in place by the end of the month. Again, a message I want to hear from the league, but here we are on March the 18th as we record this, which means within two weeks, we should at least hear what plan's been approved. And then are you two weeks more from there to get people quarantined and start a season? Are we looking mid-April now? Probably. I, I've heard that um, some of those players that have went overseas to play have been starting to fly home and when that happens to me that says 
boy, we're getting mighty close. Yeah. Because if they're flying home, you need two weeks to quarantine. And then away we go. Well, I'm, I'm glad that might be happening now because to me, mid-April is a little bit bananas. Heck, even the beginning of April is a little bit bananas. But if you're playing 24 games, right if, uh, true. But if you're playing 24 games, a 12-game a, a month is a whale of a month. So if you're starting mid-April, you're mid-June. And by the way, that also means that Memorial Cup thing, probably not going to happen. But anyway, like you just said, everything's bananas right now. Yeah. It, uh, I, every day that passes where we don't hear an announcement from Lisa, not David, um, I'm, a little, uh, I'm, I'm a little perplexed. They Here's have to a, be just dotting I's and crossing T's now. Like, let's go. Exactly. Here, here's a quick question for you on the season that will at some point get underway. And mm-hmm. I wish I could take credit for it, but, uh, but I stole it from our colleagues on 31 Thoughts. But I thought it was an interesting okay. question. If and when the season gets going and you are a prospect that is touted highly enough to be a part of the U18s in Texas this spring... Uh, mm-hmm. Plano, Texas, by the way, home of Stefan Nason, former Plymouth Whaler. Just thought I'd, when I saw Plano, Texas, I'm like, huh, I remember that from the league. Who, I guess you just remember that, uh, that, that city. Anyway. That's so right, man. Do you go, do you go and play in the U18s and play against the best at your age? Or do you play a 24 game quote unquote season? I play, I play the season for sure. Do you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, U18s is fun. It's great. But why? Well, because you're playing peer on peer, right? You're going to be able so, you, you get you get the chance to be in a tournament where you're playing against the if best I'm Francesco, in your age group. If I'm Francesco Pinelli, do I want to show scouts that I can dominate kids my age? Or do I want to show scouts that I can play against 22 or 20 year olds when wanting to move to the next level where you're going to be playing against older kids. We already know Francesco Pinelli is one of the best kids his age. What does he have to prove against people his own age? I'd much rather see what you can do in a league with a bunch of older players in it. You shine there and show me that shows me a lot more than what you can do against kids your own age. Yeah, It's funny. I, I don't want to agree so wholeheartedly, but uh, I do. I, I think, but the, I nailed it. You did, but and I'm not even, I'm not even sure for just, that reason i i think the other part of it is your exposure for sure in in real game action is far higher in even a 24 game season versus whatever you know however many games you get into uh however many games are part of the u18 tournament anyway well and i'll put i'll put it to you this way yes there are numerous um import players throughout the ontario hockey league i'll ask you straight up if the borders were open would you go to dallas texas <laughs> That's a very good point. No, Texas is not on my list of first states to visit when this is all done. I, forget even done. I mean, right now, like, would you go to Texas? Yeah, no, no, I would not. No. I wouldn't go to Florida right now. I wouldn't go. Exactly. I wouldn't go across the border right now. No, quite frankly, I wouldn't go to Detroit, Michigan. No, it, I, uh, I wouldn't go to London, Ontario right now. Let's be honest about this. Take your bubble and shove to. it. <laughs> I never want to. Uh, uh, before no, we, that's, no, carry on. Before we get to our guest. Uh, do you want to have the actual argument? Because you and I disagree completely. Sure. I, okay. I, I'm going to concede your point on the penalty that you hate. Stupid. But I'm going to tell you that the play that we witnessed was just penalized for the wrong infraction. Okay. Simple as that. So 
Go ahead. Tell me, tell me why you hate boarding. Oh, well, I think boarding is the stupidest penalty in the world. Like that's a, that's a whole, it was a, the Chris Tanev hit is the one we were talking about. I just had to look up who it was. I apologize. Um, somebody tweeted, Phil Oak tweeted me and said, boarding, a boarding penalty shall be imposed on any player who checks or pushes a defenseless opponent in such a manner that causes the opponent to hit or impact the boards violently or dangerously. The severity of the, of the penalty based upon the impact with the boards. So you I, got hit too hard. Okay. Like, but I, Phil, I, think Phil's, I think Phil's got you on the letter of the law there, pal. Well, no, that was the definition. That's, he, he wrote yeah, that's the definition of boarding from the and, rule textbook. Which, and it's a stupid penalty. I, I get you. How can you penalize someone for hitting someone too hard into the boards? That's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> like, I don't, I get it if the guy's two feet from the boards and you crunch them. Like, okay, that's a, that's a penalty. But there's often numerous stuff you can call it. Call it roughing. Why do we have to have boarding? Like, what is boarding? Have we ever heard boarding before? Is or like tripping? Yeah, I tripped. Oh, you boarded me. Stop it. It's a stupid penalty. Call it roughing. Call it a head check. Call it whatever you want to call it. Boarding. I got hit too hard into the boards. Dumb. Anyway, the Tanev hit. Yeah. Listen. So because we but because we've had this conversation before and we've we've argued about it, but I, I've come around. I think you make a really compelling case. That's fine. Let's find another name for the penalty. But in it's this case, dumb. the Tanev hit was one hundred percent a penalty. I'm calling him for the charge because he took a good four strides coming across the ice to deliver the hit. Right. There was two videos that were circulating. One was the close up shot that didn't show the track that Tanev made. And that was just a quick, and everyone's like, this is not a penalty. And that's the one I tweeted. Then somebody tweeted me the full video of Tanev tracking across the neutral zone. And I still don't think it was a charge. And here's why. Watch the video. And he starts kind of like the, basically where the winger lines up at an opening faceoff. And as the defenseman's coming up the ice, Tanev takes about three or four crossovers, basically getting him... Uh, into the center of the ice that crossover is because nobody's on that side of the ice so he's coming to fill his lane that isn't him going towards that player that is him coming to fill a lane then as that player continues up ice then Tanev takes three strides and makes his hit I think it's a clean hit the crossovers are him coming into the lane not actually going after the player but as the player's coming up then then he has to direct his body towards the puck carrier three strides makes his hit not a charge. Uh, you see, it, it's a charge, and you're you're giving him the benefit of the doubt on the crossovers to fill a lane, like a guy that slacks it or dogs it to try to get an icing call for his team. Well, he, he was doing knew, anything but dogging it, like that. Like he but, was, he was. But flying. this is the other thing, and and there was there was retribution to be had on the play from earlier in the game. Forget it. A hundred percent. Tanov had him in his sights, went to make the hit. It's a charge. It's a, and listen, hey, hockey's a rough sport. I get it. So. Whatever. And I'm glad nobody was seriously hurt, but that is absolutely at minimum a charging penalty. I don't think so. I, uh, I how many strides? Charging... So, so is four strides three a charging strides. penalty? Yeah. yeah but three, you said there's, strides, right? there have been three. So four strides yeah. is a charge. I think, well, I, think it's actually ti- I think it's actually timing. Like how many times, but he had the puck. I get it if like a charging call should be called if, you know, there's someone, there's a battle down in the corner and someone comes from the neutral zone and just straight and boom blows them up. That's a charge. Sure. But this is a hockey place filling a lane in the neutral zone. The puck carry is coming right at him. He can see Tanev coming. It's not like you're coming and I don't see you. I'm the puck carry is getting up the ice. Tanev's coming right at me. I'm seeing this hit happen. Why it hap- why it looks so bad and why he went into the boards is because 
as he goes to dump it in, he's on his outside edge on his back leg. So his one leg's basically in the air and he's dumping it in. So he's got no balance and he's already leaning towards the boards. Tanev comes in, makes a clean hit and he goes flying into the boards, makes it look a lot worse than it is. You know what this makes me realize? Did I, think I miss that... the game so much? Do you oh hear how gosh. much I'm breaking down a hit? Tell Give me, me a hockey game. I have never watched more. And I think about this a lot because obviously with a 68 game season in normal times, we're pretty damn busy watching the Ontario Hockey League and mm-hmm. traveling to places in Ontario to see these games. I don't watch a whole lot of NHL anymore, but lately, like I am devouring it. Take my money, yeah. Rogers, keep taking it because I'll, I'll buy every game every night on every package just to watch hockey. Yeah. I don't, uh, I haven't watched this much um, NHL in a long time. Yeah. A same. long time. It's, it's making me realize that I really missed the OHL, but it's still a talk. It's fun to watch, I guess. Along with showing how much this conversation, showing us how much we miss the game. It made me think that what we've been missing so far on this podcast is a referee. We're going to have to make this happen. Paul. We'll get a referee and we'll talk to him about it and find out. I would love to hear it. <laughs> I, I'm Hey, listen, I don't get, a, I don't agree with referees very often. So maybe he thinks it was a penalty. Maybe he does, but yeah, that, that could be a, uh, that could be a fun podcast. So we'll bookmark that and, and uh, find a former ref at some time with loose lips and, and get some more stories from him. In the meantime, why don't you uh, tee up who we're about to hear from on this episode of OHL stories? Yeah. Former Memorial cup winner with the Oshawa generals, big fan of lacrosse um, went overseas to play hockey over in Switzerland Um and now back home, he was a bit of a officer on the ice for the Oshawa Generals in his time in the Ontario Hockey League. And now he's going to school to become a police officer. But at the, uh, the root of Will Pechnig is, of course, the work he does off the ice. After uh, losing his father while playing in the Ontario Hockey League, uh, he started up a, a charity down in Saginaw. And he's continuing it. It now a heart like mine.ca. I want to check the, the website. Um, Will's Warriors. We get more information on all of that from our guest this week, Will Pechnik. Will, thanks for doing this, buddy. And uh, I, I appreciate the hat they're promoting, uh, your Warriors, but uh, got a fresh new look on you there underneath. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, tough hair genetics, I guess, from my, from my mom's side of the family, but uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely nice to wear my hat and support my foundation wherever I can. I'm loving the handlebars too. What's the what the reason behind the handlebars? What are you doing? Uh, I'm at Ontario Police College right now, so living out my second dream job. And uh, I can't have any facial hair, but we wear masks all day here, so uh, what they can't see won't hurt them. And uh, <laughs> tr- trying to grow out something. I'm very superstitious. We had our midterms today, so uh, I thought I'd do something different for my first ever exam in eight years. You talk about living out your second dream job. So obviously that first dream job is playing the game of hockey. And, and you, you posted an open letter uh, to social media upon the announcement of your retirement just a few months ago now. What kinds of emotions were you experiencing at the time when at the age of 25, you're saying goodbye to the game? Yeah, I mean, obviously I lived out some pretty cool childhood dreams. I never made it to the NHL, but um, I was able to win a Memorial Cup with the Generals. I was able to play for Team Canada in the Spengler Cup, and um, I met so many incredible people along the way. So 
Um, I didn't fulfill every dream, but I certainly uh, made so many memories and uh, had a lot of fun while doing so. And just, I, I guess it was time. I had some unfortunate things happen to me. Um, and I just took it how it was. And I thought it was time for me to move on. And I had a great opportunity here in my uh, new home in the Durham region where ever since I've played junior hockey here. So I thought it was at the right time for me to step away from the game and continue using uh, uh, my platform in a positive way. You mentioned those tough times, obviously the loss of your father. He was a Toronto Argonaut. You're a pretty big guy. He was a monstrous guy. Did you ever think of football? Uh, honestly, he, my, my, both my parents, they were great. They asked us uh, whatever we want to play. We were able to play, but uh, I never had uh, the passion to play football. Uh, my dad was always in pain. He had bad knees, a bad back, and I just never wanted to be like that when I grew up. So uh, I, I never did that. And I, I don't know if I fully got all his genes because, uh, again, with the hairline and then I got some of my mom's qualities. My dad was a big guy. He was 6'6", 260. So I'm not that big, but uh, I'm still a pretty big guy. It was that loss that you experienced, Will, that led to Will's Warriors. What's the charity all about? Yeah, obviously, uh, in 2013, while I was playing for the Oshawa Generals, my dad passed away suddenly. He was my best friend, my role model, and uh, he was everything to me. And uh, when I when I didn't have the chance to say goodbye and uh, seeing how difficult it was for my family and my siblings, I, I mean, I had moved away from home, so I was kind of used to being away from my family, but they were with them every day, and it was extremely hard on them. And um, there isn't too many resources available for families in Canada. And what I want to do is just get back in honor of him. So after we won the Memorial cup, I went out to, I got traded to Saginaw and that's when I started uh, the foundation and what it was, I invited families who were grieving to the games and they get a VIP experience. Uh, they get free tickets, a meal and locker room tour and a nice souvenir, whether it was a stick or a t-shirt or a signed hat, something like that. And, I'd also go out in the community with them and uh, spend time with those families at the Children's Grief Center or take part in whatever they did in the community as well, too. And I continued that for the last uh, five years of my hockey career. And it was certainly a rewarding experience and uh, something that I'll keep with me forever and continue to do for the rest of my life. Did it? Sorry, Chris, as I jump in here for a follow up, but did it help you go through your grieving process as well? Will, because it's got it's got to be tough having suffered the loss. It's so very close to you. You talk about your dad being your best friend, and then you're around families who are going through the same thing. What did that mean to you through your process? Yeah, it certainly helped me out. It's been the the best thing for my grieving process. Certainly, um, I think I'll grieve the the passing of my dad for the rest of my life. Uh, again, he was my best friend, and it's never easy to lose someone, especially suddenly and at a young age, uh, unexpectedly. But uh, being to being able to be a role model around those uh, young children and families who have lost a loved one, uh, it certainly puts things into perspective. And uh, one thing I always tell everybody is I was 18 years old when my dad passed away. My youngest sister was 14 and from 14 to 18, those are some of the best memories uh, that I ever had with my dad. And my sister would never, ever get to experience those. And uh, obviously she had her own experiences and memories with my dad, but um, it really hits home to me when I'm, when I have a family and there's three young kids who probably won't even remember their lost loved one, whether it was a parent or sibling. And um, it, it just makes me feel for those kids. And um, it, it puts things into perspective and shows how truly lucky I was to have 18 great years with my dad. You mentioned 18. It's tough losing a parent at any age. You're 18. You're living away from home, playing in a game and in a league that really demands a lot from you. How tough was it to go back to the rink and try to concentrate on playing in Oshawa? 
honestly, uh, it happened on a Tuesday afternoon. I went back Tuesday night with my billet family and then, uh, we didn't play. We had a three and three on the Friday and, uh, I knew my dad would have wanted me to play in the games. I didn't miss any games that season. So I, I went home, uh, came back Friday morning for morning skate and I played all three games that weekend. And it just so happened to turn out that we played in Ottawa the following Tuesday. And that's, we had the funeral on the Wednesday night in, uh, or Wednesday morning in Ottawa and, the team uh, stayed the night and they came to the funeral as well too. So it kind of worked out. It was a blessing and uh, having the team show up, it just shows the true character that we had in Osha with Jeff Tui and DJ Smith and uh, captain Josh Brown, like having uh, people like that around me. And of course, Rocco Tulio, uh, such an incredible owner and person with the Osha generals. It, it was certainly amazing for myself and my family to have the support of all those uh, incredible guys. I wanted to ask about that general's family as well, because, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting here with us right now, Will, but when I look around the Ontario Hockey League, I look at Kitchener because I'm biased and I'm a homer. Uh, I look at Peterborough, I look at Oshawa as as the franchises that are steeped in history and just have this tradition and, and reputation, quite frankly, around them. Uh, what did the generals do? What were they like in supporting you through this process? It was incredible. And uh, to this day, the best person I ever came across in the game of hockey is Jeff too. And he checked in on me every single day and he was there for me. Anything I ever needed, he was always there even after he, he left the team. And uh, he was always been an incredible friend and, and support throughout my career. And um, just having people like that around the generals organization uh, was certainly amazing for myself. And I felt like I was part of one big family there and uh, even former generals and, and players like that all reached out to me and they, they offered their support to myself and my family during that difficult time. And of course, when you have such a close group of guys and guys you battle with for three years and you win together with it, they're, we're all so tight and we stick up for each other and we're always there for each other and their families. So it, it's certainly uh, some great memories. And I was very fortunate to have uh, the Austria General's family with me. You mentioned Jeff Tui. We had him on an earlier edition of this podcast. and A guy who did everything in the Peterborough Pete's organization to come over to Oshawa with a Peterborough Pete's tattoo. I thought, boy, that is a bold move, my friend. What was that rivalry like for you when you played there? Uh, it was, it was pretty cool. I mean, um, I, I remember my first ever preseason game was in Peterborough at the, at the Memorial center and Derek Mathers, uh, the net scrum uh, in front of the net of whistle. And all I remember is him picking me up in front of the net and dragging me to the corner and I come to the bench. I first the linesman jumped in. He said, I don't think you want to do that. And I come to the bench and DJ's like shaking his head at me. And Sa- Scott Saber and said, I would wait. And then, uh, so I kind of got the message pretty quick there, who Derek Mathers was. But every game was just, uh, it was awesome between the fans, the, the electricity in the buildings and, and the rivalry. I mean, I think while I played in the league, we had the, the fair share of winning. And it was certainly awesome to come out on the, with two points in all those games and uh yeah the rivalry is certainly one of the best in junior hockey for sure if you knew then or got the advice then that it was the time to wait and and smart move just from the press box looking down i wouldn't have messed well i wouldn't mess with anybody but anyway uh when did you know you were ready uh honestly i in when i was playing Oshawa, i never had to we had so many guys who could throw and and fight and stick up for each other so i never really had to i mean i did maybe three or four times in three years there but uh, when I came to Saginaw, I was, it was a little bit different situation there. I was an overager and we had a lot of younger guys on the team. And uh, I guess that kind of turned in my role. And 
I went from having maybe 40 penalty minutes to leading the Ontario Hockey League in penalty minutes in my last year. So um, I'm pretty sure uh, Ryan Hutchinson, the ref, helped me out quite a bit there, gave me some double minors at the end of the games with that. But uh, it, it was certainly a, a different role, that's for sure. You mentioned you got dragged into the corner. Anybody that's willing to drag you around at 6'3", what, 220? I, that's no, that's you don't do that. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I, I don't blame you there. Yeah, exactly. I, I was pretty lucky. I never got knocked out or anything like that in all my fights, but uh, I certainly don't think that would have been a good first one to have. I don't think I uh, would have enjoyed that too much. You mentioned being on the winning end in a lot of those meetings with Peterborough, and in your time in Oshawa, you were on the ultimate winning end, winning a Memorial Cup. When Sorelli puts that goal in, what is going through your mind at that moment? Um, it chills, and every time I think about it just now, I just got chills thinking about it. It's probably... One of the coolest things to ever do. It's probably one of the toughest trophies to win in all sports. And um, to be able to do with that group and a team that we battled together for three years and added pieces at the end. And um, we were a family and and to be the underdogs, I guess, all year, we weren't even supposed to make playoffs, according to all these experts out there. But um, we battled all the way. We were number one in the CHL for most of the year. And uh, to get over that hump of beating North Bay after they swept us the year before and then uh, taking down Erie and Connor McDavid in five games in the finals. I think that kind of gave us a, a confidence swagger going to the Memorial Cup and we knew that we'd be tough to stop. And I mean, we outdefended teams and uh, we certainly got lucky in the Memorial Cup finals there. Kenny Appleby stood on his head. When you say uh, all the experts out there, you mean me and Pope. You can say it. I get it. Like we know what we, we know what we said. No, I, I, <laughs> I would go with those uh, those OHL bloggers that uh, don't really know what they're talking about or those inside hockey guys, whatever they are, all those guys on Twitter. Keyboard warriors. <laughs> Keyboard warriors. You, I wanted, sorry, I wanted sorry, to ask sorry, about real that. Quick, yeah, go real ahead. quick, you, you mentioned McDavid. The other night at, in that Lake Tahoe game, they had uh, Alex Petrangelo mic'd up. And Nathan McKinnon comes around in his defensive zone, picks up the puck with speed. And you hear Petrangelo go, oh, boy. And <laughs> McKinnon ends up getting that goal. Were there any oh, boy moments playing against a guy like Connor? Uh, actually, funny story. Uh, the first time we were in Erie playing against Connor McDavid, DJ Smith called Colin Sullentrop into the room. Uh, Colin Sullentrop and I into the room before the game and said, you have one job tonight. Just don't let McDavid do anything. And Sure enough, we're starting against him in Erie, and he wins a draw. He skates behind his D guys, and uh, he picks up some McDavid speed, and he splits us for a breakaway and goes off the crossbar. And I have my head down. I look to the bench, and I just see DJ with his hands in his air, and then, we, of course, we got pulled <laughs> off the ice. So that, that's a pretty good McDavid memory there and an old boy memory. Yeah, and, and you were far from the only one that happened to, yeah. right? Then or now? Long list. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I definitely think I was on some draft highlight videos for a lot of guys in their NHL draft videos. So that certainly happened to me quite a bit. You you talk about that Memorial Cup year with Oshawa and when it was so unexpected. But I remember the deadline that year, Will, and and Roger went out and, and made the moves to make that team what it was. Because obviously by that point, the writing was on the wall. When that happens, what happens to you and and that locker room when when you obviously see that the team has gone out and said, "Okay, it's our chance. We're ta- we're we're throwing it all in here." What's what's the mood? How does it change the team? I think it was when we saw all the other trades in the league happen. Everyone's like, "Oh, these guys are loading up." And what what Roger and DJ did a great job of is bringing in character. They brought in Miramis, who had won a, a OHL championship before and has played in Memorial Cups and. They brought in Mike McCarron, Brent Peterson, uh, Matt Mesley, a hometown kid, and 
they brought in character and guys who want to win and guys who play for each other. And I think that's what really helped them right away. They all fit in incredibly. And uh, obviously it, it worked out and it was uh, a great, great experience and a member that'll last for a lifetime. We get some listeners uh, from across the province, but uh, I know a lot of our listeners are Kitchener Ranger fans. You just mentioned Brett Peterson. What was he like in that room? He was, he was a great guy. He was a, a silent leader. He didn't say too much, but he always worked hard. I mean, he's in the NHL draft pick playing on our fourth line at the time. And I mean, when you're 6'4", 220 pounds coming down the left wing, I mean, I don't, I wouldn't want to be a young uh, right-handed defenseman. That wouldn't be too fun for him going banging and crashing in the corners. We talk about that Oshawa-Peterborough rivalry. And when we had Jeff Tui on a previous podcast, he talked about back in the day, like you would hate that drive going into Oshawa. You hated that team. It was quiet on the bus. And and we talk a lot these days, Will, about the the difference in the game when it comes to rivalries, because you might have played with a lot of guys on the Peterborough Pizza or around the league, obviously, growing up. You might be friends with them outside the rink. How do you view rivalries or when you look at the the years you played in the league, what was the rivalry and and how did it feel? I mean, when you come in, usually there's a culture instilled within uh, the organization you come into and you're pretty, you're made aware of right away of who your rivals are. And usually it's within your division and, or from past playoff experience, but right away that first game we had, you could just see all the blood and and all the past history that the generals and the Pete's had. And um, obviously I think, every preseason game we had for four years or three years, I was there, there was maybe six or seven fights in every game. So um, a lot of bad blood there, but it, it's definitely a lot of fun. And it's exciting. It's a playoff game. Every time you play in one of those games, even if it is in preseason. Obviously growing up, everybody wants to play in the OHL. Your first game. Do you remember it? Yeah. Uh, first game um, would have been exhibition or season, regular season, regular season. Yeah. Was there a moment that you remember from that? Yeah, Belleville. Uh, I had Brendan <laughs> Gons. Uh, I was playing penalty kill with the wide ice in Belleville. I had Brendan Gons come down and rip one over my leg. I tried to block a shot, went straight in, and then I don't think I played another penalty kill shift for three months. <laughs> <laughs> How tough was it to go into Belleville as a visitor and get used to the wider ice? Uh, I was definitely different. Um, I didn't play too much on it growing up, but I think it definitely prepared me for later on in my career when I went over to Europe. Um, it was It's certainly a lot of fun to play on the big ice, and obviously Belleville had some home ice advantage practicing there and playing there all the time. Uh, I was definitely one of the toughest buildings to play in in the league at that time. Oshawa is one of those teams that uh, once a general, always a general. You still feeling that now as once a general? Always. I mean, uh, when I released my documentary on October 29th, I had several former players and current general players reach out. And uh, it was cool to see Mark Savard uh, reach out and tweet out the video for me. Um, It just shows how once you are a general, you're always a general. And I mean, I live in Oshawa. Oshawa will be home for the rest of my life. And um, the people of the Durham region are tremendously supportive of the team. And uh, it's certainly a place that I love to call home. And um yeah, I mean, being a general is one of the best feelings uh, in the world, I guess, for a junior hockey player. How tough was it being traded away from that organization? Not to take anything away from Saginaw, but after those years, the championship, and then, oh, by the way, not only are you going to another team, you're going to another country with that team. I mean, I didn't, I, I kind of expected it. We did trade pretty much everything away. 
when we went all in and we had lost a bunch for the years trying to go for it the years before, but I, I expected it, but I didn't expect it to be Saginaw. Um, I was pretty bitter at the start, but obviously it turned out to be one of the best years for me personally on the ice and off the ice. So I, I think, uh, things happen for reason. And I was uh, definitely grateful that I ended up going to Saginaw and meeting some lifelong friends and, uh, having an incredible year, uh, before my first year for hockey. You mentioned DJ's name a couple of times. He's now with the Ottawa Senators. I want to ask you a two-parter here. What was DJ like? But also his assistant coach was Eric Wellwood, who was pretty young at the time. How weird was it to have such a young assistant coach? Uh, honestly, he was a huge reason why uh, we won. Obviously, DJ is the best coach I've ever had uh, in my life. And, and not only is he a coach, he's a human first. And he treats you like a human being. and He makes sure his players are good and we all want to play for him. Um, that's why... I truly do believe the auto centers will win a cup with him one day. Um, it's obviously nice. Josh Brown gets to play with him. He's got a comfort feeling there and uh, I'm sure Brownie will start playing a lot more soon. And um, obviously, well, it was nice. It was kind of like DJ was the bad cop and well, he was a good cop. Well, he would kind of tell him to back off us and we just got to play on the back end. And, you know, we had some pretty big tasks to shut down McDavid and the guys had to shut down dry and, uh, some pretty big names uh, in the Memorial Cup and before that. So, uh, well, he let us play. And if we knew we made a mistake, we knew he didn't have to say anything. And he was very supportive. And he, he just let us play. And he let us be kids on the ice. And we all make mistakes during games. But uh, I think, well, he's a great coach, too. And obviously, he's had a lot of success with Flint right now. And um, I'm sure he'll have a long coaching career if he'd want to have one. What was DJ like angry? <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, I don't think the Gatorade board in or the the whiteboard in the gentleman's restroom uh, works anymore. <laughs> uh, I, I'm sure it's been replaced a couple times, but I've seen his fist go through that thing. Um, I've seen him kick some things, uh, but yeah, he. If we weren't working, he's all about hard work. If we weren't working, he would let us know, and we'd pay for it. That's for sure. So we always made sure that we were working hard for him, and he he would give it right back to us if we worked hard. He'd reward us with a, a day off or. Uh, some sort of team bonding activity. So he was definitely uh, treated us like gold there and uh, another huge reason why we won. After you win that Memorial Cup, did you get it? Is it like the Stanley Cup? Like, do you get a day with it? Or what was the party like? Yeah, he doesn't I mean, remember the party. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> he was yeah, 19 yeah. at that point. Yeah, no, I was of age. We were in Quebec City too, so I think everybody was of age. So it wasn't, uh, wasn't anything bad going on there, but uh, it was certainly something I'll always remember. My mom and sister came down. Uh, I think everyone's families were there, and we all got to share with our families. Uh, we went on La, uh, Grand, La Grand Rue Allée or something in Quebec City the street. I'll never forget that. And We had our own mini parade there, but uh, the coolest thing was coming back for our parade in Oshawa um that was kind of our final time together before our summer uh reunion um but yeah obviously it uh it was a lot of fun and then we I think we all ended up except for the European players all ended up having a day with the cup and I decided to take it out to my Green Gales lacrosse team um part of the Durham region and uh they've been a tremendous support system for myself as well too and I thought it'd be great to have it out there and keep it in the Durham region uh, let's touch on lacrosse a little bit because lots of guys would play it in the off season of hockey uh, to this day. It's, they seem to go hand in hand. Uh, what, what inspired you to get into that game and now as a coach in it? Uh, I was a young kid, played soccer. I don't know why my dad ever had us playing soccer, but uh, it definitely wasn't for me. 
Um, I want, I always like the more physical rough stuff. So, uh, he got us into lacrosse. My brother started playing. I started playing at the same time and it was, uh, it was growing in Ottawa at the time. And now they're one of the largest minor associations in Canada. So the game's certainly taken off, but lacrosse is probably, uh, the best game I've ever played. I, I love it. Um, it goes hand in hand with hockey, um, especially for a guy like me who loves the rough stuff and stuff like that. But, um, to be able to give back in both hockey and lacrosse is certainly uh, special and, um, obviously I, I think I've said this quite a few times before I would have chosen lacrosse over hockey, but, uh, I decided to go the hockey route just because of the fact to help out my family and stuff after my dad's passing in. Um, I was definitely a way better lacrosse player than I was hockey player. Hey, there's still time, man. There's still time. There's a, there's a master plan in the background. We'll see if I can get in shape again, and uh, pick up the stick and see if I'm not an egg and spoon lacrosse player, maybe cradle a ball and see if we can get back into the game. <laughs> I love it. How's the lacrosse podcast going? Uh, it's good. I've been so busy with my foundation and uh, busy with obviously being at police college. It's on pause right now, but I'm sure uh, we'll get back into it. I think we hit like 30,000 lessons in total over 30 or so episodes so it wasn't too bad um it definitely got a lot of interest and a lot of people were enjoying it so it's certainly something i enjoy talking about as a cross and we'll i'm sure i'll keep it going at some point we touched on a couple of guys that evoked memories for you from your time in the ontario hockey league uh mathers from that first game versus peterborough and then connor mcdavid probably goes without saying uh was there a player that you really hated playing against or you got up for in advance of the game those things we talk about circling the calendar that sort of thing I think it's got to go back to so there was from lacrosse there were seven guys from the 95 uh draft that were top three round picks in the OHL draft that were on the team Ontario lacrosse team with me and one of those guys happened to be Nick Ritchie and uh so Richie and I we were line mates we played on the power play together with team Ontario lacrosse and then of course we're Oshawa Peterborough rivalries and um yeah it was certainly something else I do remember a few times he took a couple runs at me and you know obviously he was their best player at the time so I thought I'd maybe stay down for a, a hit or two to see if he'd get a five minute but we'd give it back and forth to each other quite a bit and uh he, he's obviously a great player and uh when you're six four probably 240 pounds getting hit by that sucks so uh he plays his role well and uh he's had a great career so far I couldn't imagine playing any sport with you and Nick Ritchie on the same line. I would want no part of that. <laughs> Thank you very much, especially lacrosse. Yeah, uh, I mean, we're not—we're both not the brightest guys in the pack, but uh, we, we got the job done, I guess. And obviously, you had a successful hockey career to date, and um, we're both doing good things. So it's—it's it's great to see. After your time in Saginaw, you went overseas to play for uh, Geneve Servette. Remember your first pro game? Oh yeah. Um, former OHLer, Kitchen Ranger, Nick Spalling. It was his, I believe he's in the cup finals, uh, the summer, the spring prior. And he came over and, uh, his first game was my first pro game ever. And we had Chris McSorley systems in Geneva were a little bit different, something that in crazy McSorley things. And, um, so anyways, we had this face off play drawn up and of course the puck came to me and I give him a, what I think is a suicide pass. And of course, Spalling gets hit and, for sure has a concussion and then my defense partner had to go in and fight and he breaks his nose and has two black eyes. So that was uh, my first game in Switzerland. And then sure enough, Spalls comes, plays the next game and guy lifts his stick and he's got a separated shoulder from that hit. So that was Spalling's first game. And uh, in Switzerland, all thanks to me, giving him a suicide pass and uh, a lot of great memories from over there. 
what what are some of those memories? Are they about the game or about where you were living? Because Switzerland, you could pick a lot worse places to play. Yeah, I mean, it was the full package over there. Obviously, it's one of the best leagues outside outside the NHL in the world, and uh, the hockey was great. Um, I mean, your pro hockey lifestyle. So you go to the rink for two hours in the morning, and you got the rest of the day to do whatever. And I mean, you're not in Fort Wayne, Indiana, so you're uh, you're in Geneva, Switzerland. You get to tour and travel and kind of be like a tourist at, at all times when you're not at the rink. So it's nice to turn turn off the game when you're not at the rink and uh, go explore. And I was fortunate enough to travel to pretty much every major city throughout Europe. So that was uh, definitely a pretty cool experience. You were a, a general, a spirit, an eagle at that time. And I heard you were also a travel bandit. Yeah, travel a bandit. travel bandit. <laughs> so, so my first year over there, Nick Spalling and Jim Slater were my teammates. And um, every we, we would get at least one Olympic or, or national team break a month. And we would travel to a city or two during that four or five day break. So uh, I was lucky enough to travel with two former NHLers. And they, they took care of me every time we traveled. And uh, we went to some pretty cool places. I think we went to a soccer game. We went to uh, went to Italy. We went to uh, London was probably the most fun time we had together. And I remember that, I think that was the first trip we did as a travel bandits. And uh, we get there and we're staying at the Ritz Carlton and I'm, I'm making decent money at the time. These guys have played in the NHL for 10, 12 years, whatever it was. And uh, I, I look at the price of the rooms at night. It's like 1500 pounds for one night. And we're staying there for three nights. So I'm like, cool. <laughs> And they were, they were really good to me. They, uh, they helped me out and, uh, I didn't have to pay for too much. So they treated me well. You talk about Fort Wayne, Indiana, which of course is where it all ended with the Fort Wayne Comets and best I know about them, Bob Chase, 63 years as the play-by-play voice of that team, uh, a hockey record. It might probably a sports record, quite frankly, maybe Vin Scully's close to it, but, uh, what kind of culture shock was that like after what you had experienced in Europe? coming back and, and finishing up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. There's no yeah, I mean, in Indiana. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. But they got Bern in Geneva, Indiana, which is just down the road. They're two little Swiss communities. Um, it definitely wasn't Switzerland. It was flatlands there. So it was definitely a culture shock, uh, something I definitely wasn't used to at the time. Uh, I didn't really experience wintertime. It's kind of crazy saying this, but uh, Switzerland in the winter, you're looking at zero degrees five degrees uh in the middle of the winter when you're in the valleys but when up when you're up in the mountains it's like a canadian winter so i think uh playoff time in switzerland it was 14 to 20 degrees out in february out in, in switzerland so uh being in being back in north america was a little bit different especially being in the midwest and uh the cool uh snowy winter times what'd you think of the fans in switzerland uh, it's something I think everyone has to experience. If you're a hockey fan, whether you just go to uh, a couple Swiss league games while you're traveling through Switzerland, or if you're lucky enough to go to the Spengler cup, uh, it's, it's a crazy atmosphere. And um, preseason is like a game seven triple overtime in the Stanley cup finals, every single game of the year. And they are crazy. They they're so passionate over there. And I was very fortunate that the fans loved me when I was in Geneva and um, it, it was certainly an incredible experience. And, they always had their flare guns and whatever they had all these uh, riot police were at every home game when we play our rival uh, Lozen on the other side of the lake. So uh, it was a crazy cool experiences. I'm sure there was a couple of riots in some of the games there too. So uh, the, the fans are definitely wild over there. What was the thing players would do after the game and you'd skate to the end of the board or the, the end of the glass and the fans would throw their hands up or something like that? 
Yeah, it was it was kind of like if you go to a concert, it's uh, what's the, what's the thing to get another uh, song out from the like an a encore? Song. Yeah, an encore. So they they wouldn't leave the building until we came out. So uh, they were just so happy we won a game, and uh, we all be in the dressing room, probably having a dance party or something crazy in a Swiss dressing room. But uh, uh, we would come out whether the guys are still in gear or you're all the way down in your gitch, and they come out and they just uh do this crazy chant whether it was in french or swiss german and uh we'd go up and top the glass and they'd go crazy and then in chris mcsorley's contracts in geneva we had to go talk to the fans after the game at the chris mcsorley pub so um a lot of great times over there uh maybe shouldn't have danced on a bar top after we were down 3-1 in in the playoff series but other than that it was uh, great experiences all around why should you be any different than rob gronkowski Hey, I, mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously he's next level, but uh, he's a little higher league than I was at the time. <laughs> and um, maybe I, I was a younger guy at the time, too. So maybe I shouldn't have been dancing. Uh, I wasn't a superstar by any means. So maybe he has a free pass to do that. Did you get your hand slapped for that one? Uh, honestly, I I approached our coach right away. I told him I was like, hey, look, there's something of the media. Um, this doesn't look good. I was asked to go on top of bar top with our star player. And um, I went up, it was St. Patty's day. I had a St. Patty's day hat on. And uh, I got asked in the media wise up there. I said, Oh, I'm away from my family. It's my sister's birthday. So uh, sure enough, the national news at 6 PM the next day was Geneva parties. Like they won their first championship. And uh, it's a, it's a video of me and Tanner Richard dancing up on the bar top. You know, it, it, it speaks to, and it's probably so much different for you because you're a different gender. Like I'm an old guy, Will, and, and all of the social media is like everything that you do is instantaneously in the media, whether it's online social media or the six o'clock news the next day. How careful do you have to be? Was it ever in the back of your mind? Did that teach you that it had to be in the back of your mind? I mean, obviously, being, I guess, when you play in the OHL, you're in the spotlight anyways as a younger guy. Um, but in today's day and age, you, you always got to be careful no matter what. I mean, uh, someone's always watching. There's all, everyone's got a cell phone. Everyone's always got a camera on them. So you always got to remember to be smart and you, you are supposed to be professional at the end of the way. You can have your fun for sure, but, um, you got to be professional and, you know, kids, especially for, for me and my foundation, kids look up to me and, um, I wasn't drinking or anything, but uh, I was on top of a bar, so I don't think that looked too great. Uh, maybe some people took it the wrong way, but uh, certainly you gotta you gotta pick and choose your moments. And uh, I mean, I I didn't get uh, in trouble too much. It was just kind of embarrassing and and kind of looked bad on the team. So I, I felt bad for my teammates, but they were understanding, and uh, I brought it up to them. So everything turned out to be okay. But uh, definitely a, a learning curve for me. It, was it? It was Chris Hartsburg you played for. Is that who it was? Uh, Craig Woodcroft at the time. He was uh, oh, in Geneva. In Geneva, though. Uh, Chris McSorley was the, Chris McSorley. Uh, my, sorry, thank you. My first coach, and then Craig Woodcroft came in for a year, and then the return of uh, Chris Jesus Christ McSorley over there. <laughs> what was it like under McSorley? Uh, honestly, he's one of the best uh, people that I've met in the game too. Um, he's a great guy away from the rink. His, his hockey systems are a little whack. Um, he, you know, he, he's kind of like a DJ, maybe just not as, uh, intelligent with hockey, but, um, he, he knows he's different. He's got a crazy system and it's always been successful for him. So, 
uh, whatever works, I guess, is is the way he looks at it. And uh, I'm sure he's going to coach for many more years in Switzerland. Is it Chris Jesus Christ McSorley because he came back again like a resurrection? He is like, I got to, who can I, he is like a Justin Bieber back in the early 2010s uh, to young hip hop fans. And that's what he was like in Geneva, Switzerland. He was Everyone knew who he was. He had a pub name after him, and he was like the resurrection of the team, and he brought the team from the the second league to the first league, and uh, he did everything there but win a championship. So uh, he certainly did a lot of great things over there. He always brought in high-profile players like uh, Nick Spalling and Jim Slater, who had long NHL careers, and I think Mike Santarelli, he played in Vancouver uh, there as well. He was one of the imports there as well too, so he always brought in some high-profile players. Did you play with Nathan Gerby over there as well? Yeah, Gerbs was actually there as well too. He's uh, he's a great guy, uh, a lot of fun to play with. Uh, he he works hard. He's one of the best pros I've ever played with. Um, obviously, he's not the biggest guy in the world, but he certainly worked for everything that he's got. And uh, yeah, he's he's such a, such a uh, a pros pro, and he definitely uh, was a great leader for me, and always super supportive of everything that I've ever done, and. Uh, definitely one of my favorite teammates too obviously COVID has thrown a wrench into everything it's absolutely changed our world but I can't help but think you're so recently removed from the game just having announced that retirement how how strange does it feel for you right now because after you know 20 years or so of doing the same thing at the same time of year again and again and again how how weird is it to not be in that routine and that rhythm Oh, it's definitely different. I, I certainly miss all the, the road trips or the, the plane rides and all the stuff with the guys and, you know, hanging out on the roads, whether it was in the hotels and stuff like that. Um, definitely miss all that stuff. I don't miss being yelled at by my coach for not blocking a one-timer. Um, <laughs> I don't miss all that stuff. I, I do miss the grind a little bit, but I'm sure once I get into policing full-time, I'll be able to get into a better routine and kind of try to keep the same as what I'm used to. But uh, it, it's certainly different not being around that team environment all the time. You mentioned the uh, Spangler Cup. What was it like putting on that Canadian jersey? Uh, for me, it was it was a childhood dream. Obviously, I'd never thought that day would come. I wasn't the most skilled player in the world, but uh, obviously my coach liked me at the time, and he gave me an opportunity to play for Team Canada in the Olympic year and uh, to be able to beat the Swiss Olympic Team 3-0 in the Spangler Cup finals and just that whole tournament itself, the experience. It's like a mini Olympic village when there's 3,000-plus Canadian fans that come over and vacation there for Christmas time. and come to watch hockey, ski, and get the whole Swiss experience. And um, it was certainly a memory that will last with me for a lifetime. And to share it with two uh, Austro generals, Christian Thomas and Brian Boys, Chetto, who's uh, one of the best equipment managers in the game, um, it was certainly awesome and uh, definitely a lot of fun. Uh, certainly an honor to wear 65, my dad's number, uh, on a Team Canada jersey. You talked about traveling with the teams. Forget the flights you were able to take with teams in Europe. What about those bus rides when you were in the Ontario Hockey League, especially Saginaw? There's not a whole lot as close in Saginaw as there would have been for some of your shorter road trips in Oshawa. What do you remember about some of those bus trips in the O? Yeah, I mean, obviously three years in Oshawa, one year in Saginaw. I was pretty lucky. Oshawa's central in the OHL. Uh, bus trips aren't as bad. Sioux was one bad one. And then the U.S. trip to Saginaw, I guess Plymouth at the time was a little rough, but it wasn't that bad. But when I got to Saginaw, those even like our division trip, Saginaw to Sioux was four and a half hours. 
Um, and you, every time the bridge was iced or shut down, so we'd have to wait or snowstorms or something crazy was going on while we were on these road trips. I remember in Saginaw, we had to push the bus. We stopped because the roads were so bad. We stopped on like a pull-off or a rest stop on the highway in the U.S. And our bus got stuck on top of the snow. So we all had to get out and push. So that's that's certainly an OHL memory of bus travels for me when I was playing in Saginaw. And then uh, Saginaw Ottawa was a rough one. I think we went from Saginaw to Peterborough on a Thursday night, Friday night in Kingston, and then Sunday afternoon in Ottawa. And then we had to go back um, Sunday night after the game, which was 11 and a half hours. We had some problems at the border uh, with some of our European players with their passports. And then uh, we had a 10 a.m. game on the Tuesday morning in Flint. So that was uh, that was a tough road trip for us back in those OHL Saginaw days. I'm never going to complain about a bus ride again, Farwell. Like, <laughs> we got it cushy, man. Do we ever. Holy. What was, what was worse, the bus trips that you just described in Saginaw? All those long travel, albeit maybe a little cushier, in Switzerland. Or the bus trips and uh, traveled down in Fort Wayne. Um, Fort Wayne was a little different. I mean, uh, pro is a little bit different when you're traveling. You probably can get up to a little bit more things on the bus. And uh, we had the sleepers in Fort Wayne, a little bit different. Um, thankfully, I was uh, a veteran on the team, and I didn't have to sleep on the floor because some of those trips uh, were brutal. I didn't take part in the long one they did last year. They did a 17 hour trip on a sleeper bus and I know guys didn't sleep on the bus so uh that would have been tough and they had to play they went night before the game they got in three hours before the game uh from a 17 hour bus trip so uh I'm glad I didn't have to play in that game but uh yeah I definitely say some of the OHL travels suck like with the snowstorms and I got to give a bunch of credit to the bus drivers I had that always got us there safe and sound and they do an incredible job We've had some conversations on this podcast already about Saginaw since the franchise was born. And and really the the ownership there has done everything it can to kind of sell the game. And that it seems like there's always some kind of gimmick. I I remember when the ice girls would come out and basically they didn't skate so well, but they had the shovels to keep their balance as they went by the benches and stuff like that. But when you and I remember the night they called out the winners from a fishing derby that weekend, all kinds of stuff going on at the Dow. Uh, as as a player there, do you remember any of those nights where there was something special going on that kind of like you're thinking, can we start the game? Can we can we finish this intermission? You had to stay out after the game to do something. Well, from my experiences, uh, Oshawa maybe had six special nights a year. Every single home game in Saginaw, we had a ceremonial puck drop or something. Every single one. Um, and obviously Dick Garber and Craig Oslin do an incredible job and they're so supportive of their team. They'll do whatever it takes to win. And they've done a tremendous job with bringing in Dave Drinkle and now uh, Laz is their head coach. And I know the players love them and uh, they certainly have established an incredible culture there and have turned around to Sag, uh, turn around Saginaw be one of the top teams in the OHL. And obviously if you get a guy like Cole Perfetti wanting to come play there and then a lot of people will start coming to play there and, um, you know, it certainly turned Saginaw around and Dave Drinkle, you know, he was there from uh, my last year. That was his first year. And I had a bunch of talks with him and he, he took a lot of things to heart and he certainly did an incredible job at, at changing that culture around and, and making Saginaw one of the elite teams to play for in the OHL today. I'm sure they're hating this COVID more than a lot of people because man, did they ever have a wagon of a team this year? Um, you scored 11 goals in the Ontario hockey league. I believe it was your, 
11th goal you scored in Saginaw and you had 36 Wills Warriors in attendance. What was it like to get that goal? That was my uh, last OHL regular season game uh, and all the families that uh, came to the uh, Wills Warriors through my heart, like mine foundation throughout the season. Um, they all came to the final game and surprised me and they all had shirts on and uh, it was pretty cool. I, I think it was the first goal of the game and it was just, I never score. I think I had five or six in my last year, probably five of those were empty netters. So um, it, it was definitely pretty cool. And uh, a memory that will too stick for me, uh, stick with me forever. Where can people find out more about Will's Warriors? Where can we see the documentary? Uh, the documentary is on YouTube. It's all over my social media pages. Uh, Twitter's Will's Warriors 65 and uh, Instagram's at heart like mine 65, or it might even be Will's Warriors 65. I don't know what they changed it to now, but um, you can see it on uh, www.aheartlikemine.ca and the video and everything about the foundation and what my plans are for the Durham region and hopefully expand across Ontario and throughout Canada. Uh, whether I'm still alive or I'm not, uh, just hoping to bring a lot of grief awareness uh, for grieving children and families and have resources for these families who are going through a difficult time in Canada. But through Heart Like Mine, you, you talked about your plans. You have some big plans for Durham Region. What are they? Um, I plan on opening Canada's premier children's grief center. Um, obviously, I, I have an incredible board of directors and we're in the process of putting the plan together. So um, there's a lot of great places in Canada that offer grief support. And um, for me uh, personally, counseling never worked for me. Uh, the only thing that worked for me was the being around the children's grief centers in the United States when I was playing in Saginaw, Fort Wayne and uh, my children's foundation. So uh, for me, I want to bring something like the U S model into Canada and have everything in house, whether it's counseling, mental health, um, just grief specific supports for, for uh, grieving families to all be in one place and, they all realize that they're not alone and that people are going through the same thing as them and uh, just have an all around peer support system in their uh, home area. It's pretty ambitious stuff. And it's, it's certainly a departure from hockey, right? Like guys that we usually talk to, they have a playing career and then who knows what happens after, but your, your career choice and going into policing aside, this is a whole other, this is a whole other dimension. What are you, what are you learning as you go through this? You got a board of directors, you got these plans for Durham region and beyond. What's, what's the learning experience been like? Obviously I, ever since I was lucky enough to have Charlie Porter in Saginaw, she worked for the team at the time and she was amazing, incredible helping me. She did everything. And I just basically showed up to the games and said hi to the families and did all the stuff. And she did everything behind the scenes, but the last five years I've done everything by myself. And um, it's nice to have this board of directors that want to, put my vision and and kind of help me put it together and they're obviously they're a lot smarter than me I only got a Ontario high school degree so I don't think that's going too far with all this stuff but uh, uh they're, they're certainly super supportive and I have a lot of great resources and Jeff Tui is one of the board members Mike Glock voice the Osho general so I'm pretty fortunate to have some incredible people on my board and um, I'm sure we're going to have something pretty incredible for the Durham region and the next uh coming years here and hopefully it'll take off just as I envision. You mentioned those Will's Warriors in Saginaw, it's where it got started and now going through this process with Heart Like Mine and, and this house you want to start. What have you learned through this entire process? 
Um, obviously nothing starts in one day and it's a process and COVID's kind of been a blessing for me. It gives us more time to plan everything. And obviously with me being here at school, at police college, um, it gives us more time to figure out some important details and, and get the, the brick foundation laid before we start doing anything big. And um, it's certainly uh, exciting times ahead. And hopefully uh, this model will be able to help out grieving children and families throughout Canada and kind of bring awareness to how difficult it can be for youth in Canada, because a lot of people don't realize how crazy the stats are. It's one in 14 kids in Canada will experience the loss of a loved one by the age of 18. So I, I never knew that. Um, but after I've done a lot of research and a lot of seeing a lot of people's stories and, and seeing all these families who are grieving, it's certainly opened my eyes and I want to do my part to help out and give back to the communities that I call home. I want to speak for Popey here because we're broadcast and podcast partners and our tens and tens of listeners will, would love to hear more about this. We'll keep in touch and make sure we keep spreading the word. And uh, if at some point down the road, you catch a couple of bald guys speeding on the way to an OHL game, cut them some slack. Would you like, you know? Hey, I don't think I'll ever give a ticket if you're respectful and uh, you're nice to me. I'm just trying to uh, be a nice, good person. And uh, I know I was in some people's situations where it's difficult sometimes. So I'll just try to be a good guy and remember where I came from. Perfect. I'll make sure Farwell doesn't talk to you. Then we get pulled over. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Will, thanks a lot for doing this. It's fantastic what you're doing with Will's Warriors. I I mean it. We want to support as best we can, but uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks for sharing the stories. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Jeff Woods and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. He had all, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from JeffWoodsRadio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.